Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to, this is actually the final meeting of the Genealogy Circle for 2014. Um, I'm Caprice DeLillo. I'm the Assistant Manager of the Maryland Department. Um, and if you haven't had a chance, I think most of you, I saw you over at the table by the, the entrance over there, but there are some handouts for the presentation. Um, if you haven't gotten them, feel free to, to go ahead and, and get them now or, or whenever you'd like. Um, there's also, you'll notice over there, um, a couple of uh, forms where you're ask, we're asking for some information from you. Um, as this is the last uh, presentation and meeting for the year, we're asking for your help. Um, if you've got some topics that you would like for us to cover next year, uh, we'll do everything in our power to try to get uh, speakers here for whatever the topic is that you're interested in. And there's a form over there where we ask you if there's any topics that you're interested in to please put them on the form. Um, and then also there's another form where we're asking for your email address. If you have an email account and you'd like for us to send you um, any kind of you know, reminders when we've got programs coming up, anything like that on genealogy, if you're interested in researching genealogy and you'd like to be informed when we've got programs, um, put your, please put your email address over there. Um, we're going to start. Um, Jane, Jane Thursby is here, and I'll introduce her in a moment. Um, she's going to be speaking for about an hour about church records. Um, and the one thing that I do ask, there's one other form over there that's really, really important to us. It's an evaluation form. Um, please, after the meeting is over today, um, take just a couple minutes to fill that out. Um, we, we really do look at these. We look at all of them. Um, we send them to the speaker as well. Um, but we use these to justify our funding. Um, we do get funding through the state, and we use all of these evaluation forms for these programs, these wonderful programs that we put on um, to justify our funding. So they're really important, these evaluation forms. Um, so please just take a couple minutes after the program's over to, to fill those out. Um, okay, so we can go ahead and get started. Um, Jane Thursby is here. Um, she began her family research when she found her father's baby book among her grandmother's items over 20 years ago. Uh, the baby book contained a five-generation family tree with names she'd never heard, um, and the quest was on. Her research training and analytical background sparked a passion for family research, and she's now not only discovered who all the people in the baby book were, um, but many more distant relatives, and they are all Marylanders. Um, those of you who do your, your, who've been doing your genealogical research, your family history research, probably jealous of this. Um, not, not a lot of people actually have this luxury to have all of their relatives within one state. Um, so Jane has really become quite the expert on um, Maryland family research. Um, she is the past president and current vice president of the Frederick County Genealogical Society. Um, though she's currently living in Frederick County, uh, she is Baltimore born and raised. Uh, she's a member of the Baltimore County Geolo Genealogical Society, the Howard County Genealogical Society, the Carroll County Genealogical <laughs> Society, and the Maryland Genealogical Society. I don't know how she has time to do anything else but attend <laughs> Genealogical Society meetings. Um, and she's a speaker on genealogical research in Maryland and on research techniques, especially those to help break down brick walls. Uh, so welcome, Thank Jane you. Thursby. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And let me know if you can't hear me because I will move over to the microphone that's louder. As, as Caprice told you, I am a 100% Maryland girl. I can trace all my families back to the original immigrant, and I tend to stop at that because mine came in, all of them were here in Maryland by 1720. 
I don't have anybody that came after that, any of my branches. Um, I, I always say my family wasn't very adventurous. They came to Maryland and they stayed. The furthest west they got was Frederick. And then in the 1900, early 1900s, they moved back to Baltimore. I did not realize any of this. My family, I don't know how many of you have families that just didn't talk about their relatives. And mine was very much like that. Now, I came from a very, very small family tree on my father's side of the family, so I can understand that. I always tell people I don't have a family tree on my father's side. I have a family stick. <laughs> because either if they had multiple children in a generation, those children, either only one of them went on to get married and have children, or only one of them even survived to adulthood. And this goes on for generations. On my Thursby side of the families, I have no second cousin, third cousins, fifth cousins, sixth cousins, seventh cousins. I have none. I do have some fourth cousins, if you notice I left that out. But I do have a few on that, less than ten. So I come from this really small family on my father's side. Now my mother's side of the family is another picture. I'm related to everybody in the state through my mother's side of the family. We were talking about the Shipleys. I also belong to the Shipley Family Association. Shipleys of Maryland, it's called. And um, God, the Shipleys are all over the United States, and they're all related to Adam. Isn't that great that the first immigrant that came was named Adam? Adam Shipley. <laughs> we all go, what, what child from Adam are you? And uh, people kind of look at us when they don't quite understand that. But, uh, but I've had, I guess I was blessed to have everybody here in Maryland because I had to really learn the Maryland records then. What was available? When is it available? Where is it available? And how do you go about using them? And one of the best sources of records that I have found are church records. And we're going to go into why that is true in this state because of the way the government, the vital records program was in this state. So why are you using church records? I mean, we're going to go into why church records are a good source of information. What are the secular records, the non-church records, the governmental records, the vital records, whatever you want to call it, that are out there that then can also be used in conjunction with those church records? And what information in particular can be found in these church records? And this is going to be very different by what religion you are, and are what church you are looking at, even by what minister, you're, you're, you know, because none of them, all of them weren't just great records keepers. So you, you'll be baffled sometime as to why one minister kept details and the other one actually would put things down. Like I had one record where he had gone out and done some marriages and came back and he was filling in the information in the church record and he put the man's name and then he put the woman's first name and he put down, oh, I forget what her last name was. <laughs> you know, okay, you know, thank you very much. Of course, that will be your ancestor. That would have been the record that you were looking for. And, and that, but that's not unusual, so let's go through. So we have to know, one of the things I was talking about earlier with the people in the room is that you become historians when you become genealogists. Because you have to understand what their reality was, which is their, our history, but it's their reality. It's the way it was at that time. It is not necessarily the way it was is at this time. 
And Maryland does have a very unusual uh, religious history. I know if you went to school here in Maryland, you all learned that freedom of religion was the big thing that Maryland was known for. Hmm. Did that really exist? No. But let's, we're going to go through. So the, everyone thinks that Maryland was founded, the first churches were founded here, the first religious services was Catholic. Again, that's not true. The first religious services here in this state were Anglican what we think of as Episcopal here in the United States, the Anglican. And it was over on the eastern shore. And not the the Ark and the Dove, which everyone thinks is the first settlement and everything, was a little bit, just a few years later. And the Catholic Jesuits took possession and built their the very first church itself. The very first church was built, uh, was a Catholic church in down in St. Mary's County. Um, they they actually passed the statute the the colonists did that said that was trying to give the Catholic Church and the Holy Church as they called it providence and shall have all rights and liberties. This was not true. Everyone thinks that people migrated to the colonies for religious freedom. Yes, for their own religion, freedom. Think about the persecution that took place of non uh, the non pilgrims. You know the Puritans up in uh, Massachusetts, if you were another religion, you were not treated well whatsoever up in Massachusetts. That's because they got to decide what the rules were. They came, they set it up, they decided. So that's what Maryland was supposed to be for the Catholics. Lord Baltimore was a Catholic in a Protestant country, and he was given the state of Maryland or the land here, and he wanted to set up a haven for Catholics. However, that didn't work too well for them because there were a lot of Puritans, Presbyterians, and Independents who moved from Virginia where they were being persecuted and they came over and they started the county of Anne Arundel. So St. Mary's was the first county. Anne Arundel came next. And they... They actually passed a law. This is the year I think most people learned in uh, elementary school, 1649, Act Concerning Religion, which safeguarded Protestants only. That's significant because there are other religions that were here in this state. But Protestants were safeguarded. Notice that didn't say Catholics, does it? Mm. They founded the state, and they were very quickly started to, um, uh, let me go back and make sure I got it there, started to find that they were not welcomed. So from uh, 1658 to 1662, there were uh, quite a few Presbyterians on that came into the state, another religion. And in fact, the very first congregation founded of Presbyterians in the America was founded here in Maryland and still exist. The very first one. Doesn't exist where it was founded. It kept moving a little further west, a little further west, a little further west. And it's now in Hyattsville, Maryland. Charles County appears to be where the Presbyterian... This is very significant. Maryland has an enormous number of firsts in the religious background um, for, this, for the country. The Quaker meeting. Now, Quakers obviously weren't first in Maryland. They first were in Pennsylvania. 
But this, however, the very second yearly meeting that was ever found that was founded here in Maryland. And there was an enormous number of Quakers, especially on the eastern shore of Maryland. And slowly they, they, they grew in size and then they decreased very rapidly as people moved on. The third haven, uh, church haven meeting house was erected in Talbot County, again at eastern shore. The Quakers on the West River, the Anne Arundel, were strong. They kept strong into the middle 1800s or so. So we had a lot of Quakers. It's significant to know that the Quakers, because they tended to be very open about certain things, very liberal in their thinking about certain things, but they were also very closed, which just closed because of the fact that um, that was how they ended up, in, in a sense, controlling their congregation. They didn't let you marry outside the congregation. They didn't want you even associating with people that were. And I think that's really what, what was the downfall of the Quakers in, in uh, Maryland, at least. Catholics constituted only one-twelfth of the population. Everyone thinks of Maryland. I mean, obviously, it's, it's named for the Virgin Mary. Um, and they, but they only constituted about one-twelfth of the population. The Anglican Church, a very important thing, is that they divided, they were very organized, and they divided up into parishes so that records could be kept. These parishes, however, are not fixed. They tend to change boundaries and move around. So just because somebody is in one particular parish now doesn't mean that's even near what the parish was at that point. And it's very important to find out where those parishes were located and what the boundaries were at the different times. It's kind of like counties. County boundaries changed, and parishes' boundaries changed. So you need to know that. So what are some other history? Well, Ninian Bell, who happens to be one of my relatives, and I, I pronounce it Beale, but the people over in, in Montgomery County pronounce it Bell um, for reasons that they say it's because George Washington wrote him a letter and actually spelt it B-E-L-L, so they assumed that it must have been pronounced B Bell. However, my family pronounces it Beale. So, and they were right there. They he did start it a uh, presbytery over in Washington. Remember what what is Washington is actually part of Maryland at that time. Didn't become Washington until the 1800s, uh, separate from the state. Um. Uh, they started clamping down. Baptisms of children was a crime if you were, it was done by a popish priest. So the Catholics started getting persecuted fairly early on. That, that freedom of religion didn't last, you know, so. The Quakers uh, moved into Baltimore in 1714, uh, right near where their graveyard is. Uh, if you've ever been down on Harford Road, you'll see the old Quaker Graveyard, that's where Johns Hopkins is buried. So, um, and it's just currently, you know, at that point it was outside the, the what's considered the present boundaries of Baltimore. Catholics, what is this? Another thing that came down on the Catholics in 1718, they lost their right to vote. So it wasn't long. German by language, and I have to say that German by language because there are several countries where German people uh, spoke German 
And you have to, you know, remember that, that just because they spoke German doesn't mean they're from Germany. Uh, they began arriving, but they didn't come in through the Chesapeake. They came from Pennsylvania, coming across, heading west across the state, until they got to um, Gettysburg, and then they headed down what is now known as Route 15. It was a, the reason why roads were built where they are is because they were good trails. You know, easy places to drive a wagon and everything, a cart and everything. So that's where it became. And they came down, and they were all different religions, mostly Lutheran, but there were Mennonites and Moravians and Dunkards and some Catholics. Catholics really didn't move into the area until a little bit later, but think about the fact that St. Mary's uh, is out there. And um, so uh, it can... It, Western Maryland can have a lot of Catholics uh, in the early times. A reformed congregation was built in Craigerstown. The first Baptist church was organized. And, uh, these are all in Western Maryland. Most of these are actually Frederick County. So, and the first Lutheran church, the first, re but they finally got a reformed church in Baltimore organized by the mid-1700s. Uh, so things are picking up. We're getting a lot more religions in into the state. In 1861, they finally, the Presbyterians, raised enough money to get a church built within the city. And then Methodism arrives in the state. So we've had a lot of firsts in this state. A lot of the first times of religion. Methodism, the, the mother church of Methodism is right here in, in Baltimore at Lovely Lane. Wasn't there, that church was built in 1885, but the original Lovely Lane Church, which was built on Lovely Lane, that's why it's called Lovely Lane, um, was built very early on. And uh, so Methodism is also the first time it existed was here. This is where a lot of the Quakers went. They became Methodist. So think that way if you're looking for people back in the early times. And the and when the revolution began, 17, the Declaration of Independence, one of the things that it did was disestablish, it undid the Anglican Church. That was the only religion that was recognized in the state of Maryland legally. And uh, at that point, the state owned all the properties and they turned it over to the Episcopal Church. And that's what it became known as, the Protestant Episcopal Church in 1782. So we went from being, it's not really that different from the Anglican Church. It just now is called the Protestant Episcopal Church here in the United States. By 1783, Maryland had 16,000 Catholics. And the rest of the colonies had minor New York State had only 1,500. Pennsylvania had 1,700, and the rest of them had less than that combined. So Maryland, although they persecuted the Catholics, the Catholics really came to Maryland because they, they, the, this is where it was their stronghold in the colonies. So but when, the, when the United States began, Maryland was the most densely populated Catholic state. 
So American Methodist Church officially separated. It actually was part of the Anglican Church. And in fact, um, Wesley did not want to separate from the Anglican Church. And, but the Americans did. And so they officially separated into the Methodist Church. And the First Baptist Church ended up being organized here. The Reformed, more Reformed churches, the Second Reformed Church was founded, and this building actually still exists and has all its records. A lot of his records have been transcribed, so it's a good choice of uh, churches. St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore was, fo- was founded as one of the oldest uh, uh, higher education schools in, in the state of Maryland. And it is also the location of the all the records for the Catholic Church, the past records. It's their archive. Um, and, and then we've gotten some other religions that became into uh, what was called the New Jer- Jerusalem Church was founded. So we ended up getting quite a bit. Maryland was seen as uh, the place to come. United Brethren of Christ was formed out in Frederick. You notice another German-style church. This, again, is a, school, a pacifism, uh, a, a church that is pacifist, and they formed out in Frederick. Still going very strong out there, but probably only there. That's probably not too many brethren churches other places. I work in emergency management, and the brethren churches really help out following disasters, and they provide a function that I hadn't thought of would be needed, but it's child care following disasters because their parents need to be off doing something, you know, helping to get recovery of their own houses or whatever they're doing, and so the kids need to be taken care of. And the United Brethren Church comes into any emergency and will just set up big child care centers and everything to help take care of the kids so their parents can go take care of what they need to. The first independent Christ church was organized, and that is where we get the first Unitarian churches. But, like the, uh, some other religions, Unitarians were not looked at in positive frame. And it wasn't even until 1825. 1825. Now, I thought we were founded with the, on religious freedom in the United States. But it wasn't until 1825 that Jews and Unitarians gained full political rights. They could not vote. They could not hold office. So, 1825, that's, you know, 50 years later than what I would have thought something. But uh, some other churches that started. Another thing to remember is that the Methodist churches, they kept splintering off and splintering off into other groups. Um, Didn't come back together fully until 1937. And then again in 1966, they merged a whole bunch of churches back together and became the United Methodist Church. So you need to know when someone says, all my family's Methodist, they're going to say, what form of Methodism are you? Are you Methodist Episcopal, a Methodist Protestant, a Methodist Episcopal South? I mean, there's quite a few of them. Are you United Church of Christ? You know, that type of thing. You know, you would, you would amazing how many different types it would be. Okay. Baptist congregations became part of all the Baptist congregations in the state of Maryland joined up with the Southern Baptist Convention and remain there today. 
Baptist conventions have, there's quite a few different Baptist conventions also. But the one that's called the Southern Baptist Convention is where the, the, the churches back in the 1800s joined up with. Um, it wasn't unusual to go into a town and find three Methodist churches right next to each other. One of them being the Methodist Episcopal, one being Methodist Protestant, and one of them being Southern Methodist. And they'd always, a lot of times they'd even share the sextant between the three of them, but they wouldn't share religious services between. So you have to know that because that's where the records are going to be found, in that original church type of record. Okay. So... That's a little bit of the history of religions in the state of Maryland. And now I want to talk a little bit about, do a recap on what are the secular records, the governmental vital records that are typically thought of. And we think of those as birth, marriage, divorce, and death records. We think of those as what we have every day. You know, it's our way of doing life and everything we all have a birth certificate, and we all eventually get a, a death certificate from the state of Maryland when we die here. But that's not always true. So, but it wasn't always true back even in the early days of Maryland. The very first vital records that were ever done in this state were simply marriage and divorce records. They didn't have birth and death records. We had marriage and divorce records. The reason why marriages were very important records is because they had to do with property rights. Not for religious reasons. You know, you could get married in the church, but the marriage record indicated, the vital record indicated how that property then was going to be divided upon your death, depending on the law and everything, and you had to prove marriage. One of my very first ancestors that came over he was an indentured servant, and if you know anything about the way indentures worked in Maryland, um, after you finished your indentureship, you were given 50 acres of land. Wherever the state decided you were given that 50 acres of land. <coughs> Excuse me. And my Timothy McNamara got his land in Dorchester County. I swear it was all swamp land, but that's what they gave him. And... My very first real record of him is not even his marriage record. It was his wife's probate record of her first husband, who died one week prior to them getting married. Now, the reason being is that land could not be inherited by a woman. And if there were children involved, then a guardian would be involved. And that was going to be a man. And if she didn't have any relatives, and it was, or he didn't have any, the, the man who owned the property originally didn't have any relatives, that could be somebody you just don't want. And, so, and also we're talking the 1600s, this is about 1670 or so. And they would um, get, there weren't that many women especially women that had property coming to them, you know. And so it actually in the probate record of her first husband, which she went about two weeks after he had died, she goes in and she's already remarried to him. 
And so he was made the guardian and was given the property. And that was the easiest thing for them to do. They went on to have children, otherwise I wouldn't exist. But, um, but they, uh, he became quite a large property owner. But a lot of that land began because he inherited it, or if you can say he inherited it by marriage uh, from his first wife, from his wife who had uh, gotten it from her husband. So marriage records were very critical. I mean, that's what the, they, that's the whole reason that that marriage probably took place very quickly. So there wouldn't get the court system involved as much into. So you're going to be looking for records, not only in church records and, and vital records, but you're going to be looking in records that you don't think to look in. Looking for a probate record that's going to indicate when a marriage took place or who the, the couple was and everything. You have to look at a lot of different records. Divorces, they weren't really legal. And if you did get a divorce, you had to go through the state legislature. So, boy, that's a record to have, right? You can go look up your name, and they keep all those records. They're online. And put your surnames into the vital record thing and have it find all the different things that, that surname. Of course, if you don't have... If you have a common surname, that might be a little difficult. Luckily, I have a bunch of uncommon surnames, and I can find every single time that they, people, my relatives were cited in there for all different things, uh, in, including getting a pension from the War of 1812 and you know um, all different things like that you'll find in those records. But that's the only place that you'll find a divorce record for many, many, many years. Um, marriages... Uh, they passed a lot of different laws regulating marriages from the time that they first started in 1640 until the, the, the Declaration of Independence came in, until we became a state. There was a lot of ways that they set up recording them and everything. Some, they said who could get married, um, you know, uh, just all the rules that required um, regulating of marriages. And beginning in, in, in 1640, you had to not be an apprentice. You had to be take an oath that they were uh, not a under the, the um, guardianship of a parent. You know, you couldn't be too young. You couldn't be under a guardianship. So those type of things. And that would be significant, things that you need to know, because if they were granted that, that would tell you that they were a certain age at that point. Information. Um, in 1864, they had the first law that was that actually prohibited the marriage between white women and black men. There was never a law in the state of Maryland that said that black women could not marry white men. It was just the other way. And that law didn't get repealed until 1967. Okay? 300 years. Beginning in 1866, you could only get married legally in the Anglican Church. That's it. You couldn't get married any other way. That's why you need to know where those parishes are. Regardless of the religion that your relatives were, they would get married in the Anglican Church. Why did they get married in the Anglican Church? Because if they didn't, their kids would be considered bastards. 
So it is not uncommon to find a couple getting married in the church one month before a child is born. What does that tell you? That they weren't Anglican. And they had gotten married in their church. And I use that in quotes, married in their church. But when they wanted to make sure that child was not considered a bastard, which was a big thing, there's records on bastard children in the state, in the colonies and in the state of Maryland, they would go and get married in the Anglican church to make it legal. There was no other way of getting married. There was no license, certificate, anything like that. You had to get married. If you have a question, yes. Till the Revolutionary War. I'm sorry. Did I say 1866? I'm sorry. No, 1666. Yes, 1666 is when they first mandated it, and it did not change for 110 years. Once we became the state of Maryland, which happened immediately. In 1776, the state of Maryland was formed. Um, at that point, they set up special rules. They set up their own rules at that point. Uh, these are some other laws. And the one that's important to note is civil marriages were not permitted in this state until 1963. How did we become the marriage capital of the world up in Elkton, Maryland, if we didn't, weren't allowed civil marriages? That people would come down from New York on the train and get married in Elkton and hop back on the train and go back home. Well, it's because justices of the peace were considered clergy, de facto clergy. That's how they got around that. But you had to be married by a Clergy. That's very important. That's going to help you a lot in your research. And we're going to go into why knowing who that clergyman was is going to help you. It is part of that legal record is who the clergyman was. Okay. But all the laws that were created, even the ones at the beginning of the state of Maryland, they only, only impacted white citizens. They did not in any way. There was no such thing as legal marriages of blacks. Legal marriages. They did get married in the churches and everything, but there was not anything. And it wasn't until we got a new constitution following the Civil War. People who know that the Emancipation Proclamation only freed slaves in the states that seceded from the Union, Maryland was forced not to secede. Therefore, Lincoln allowed slavery to continue in Maryland and legally, although it probably ended at the end of the Civil War, legally it did, continued until 1867 when the new Constitution forbid it. Okay? We are actually still working under that Constitution. That's the last time they rewrote the Constitution. We um, 
have a lot of amendments and everything since then, but every 10 years they're supposed to have a constitutional convention and they vote on deciding whether they need one or not, and every 10 years they say they don't. So um, that's the Constitution of Maryland. It's 1867. Um, you could get married by publishing bans, in which case you went to your church and they publicized it, you know, usually by putting something up on the wall or announcing it every Sunday for several Sundays in a row that you were getting married. <coughs> but most of the time you needed a license. License was what they, the law that they came up with in 1777. You needed a license. It was fairly expensive for the time. It was like $4.50. That's pretty lot, a lot of money back then. But you needed a license to get married. And the recording of those licenses is very, was dictated how they do it. Now, uh, they kept changing it through the years. And, and, and they, every few years they would change how they were going. By the time that in 1890, they actually started recording band, marriages done by bands. These are, sec these are the vital records. So, but prior to that, you didn't have to do that. Even in 1890, you did not have to record your marriage if it was done by bands. I'm not going to say that if you don't find the marriage record, they probably got married by bands. Um, there were very few people that got married by bands only. So do look for that. We're going to look for those church records. Finally, it was totally repealed in 1941, and you have to have a marriage certificate license now. You must get that license. Okay. Quakers, however, were given special dispensation. They didn't have to follow any of the rules. However, they are such good record keepers that you really hoped that you had somebody who was, who was married in the Quaker meeting. My daughter was married as a Quaker, and down in Georgia, they had to have a legal person do it, but um, they had a contract that they sign at the ceremony, and then everybody in attendance signs it. Everybody, including children, if they can write their handwriting, which makes it a really good document, because most of the time, they're going to be relatives who are showing up. And if you get something taking base in 1850 at a Quaker wedding and it has 50 people, you know, odds are they are going to be relatives of you of some sort. And it's also going to tell you where they were at that time because they didn't, weren't going to travel hundreds of miles to come to your wedding. I hate to tell you they didn't do that back then. So, so uh, odds are that you're going to say, ah, ha, ha, this is where they, this is the meeting that they belong to. So you hope that you find a Quaker uh, marriage. It really gives you a lot more information that you find than you find on a regular license. They tried to, they kept trying to get births and deaths registered. It just never took. It just never took. Yeah, there were a few of them. They tried. The New England states, they did a lot of that, but uh, they get down in the south and they don't want they don't want to record everything. So it just did not take until the late 1800s. They finally got 
these things. So, but there are a few of these registers available still. I mean, and there were laws that said you were supposed to do it. People didn't follow it for births and deaths. It really didn't make that much difference to them. And so as a result, the main source of death and burial records for the colonial period is still church records, period. You're going to have to go to the church record to find out what's going on. Because most cemeteries back then were either private cemeteries on their land or they were church cemeteries. So, uh. Anglican Church was the government sanctioned church during the whole colonial period. Uh, there were other denominations. I'm not saying there weren't, but that is the one that was sanctioned by the church, by the state, by the colony. We're not a state yet. By the colony, it was the only sanctioned church. And finally, when it, all the laws that had been passed lost their effect in 1776 when Maryland became a state and got its first constitution. Now, this is before the United States was formal. This, we became a state of our own. I have relatives that I've been able to trace in the marriage records of the state of Maryland back to that time period. And so those records are very important. So, um, and it continues. Most churches, however, continued the practice of registering burials well into the 20th century until death certificates. Let's talk about death certificates. One of the things, Maryland, the city of Maryland, the city of Baltimore, um, was the first location in the state of Maryland to have death certificates. They started death certificates in 1875. Why did they do this? It was not to figure out who these people's parents were. It was not to know where they were born. It was to find out what they had died from and how soon they were going to get planted in the ground to cover up those, that terrible disease that they died of. Okay, So you will see that it will say what they died from, these are very up until probably about 1900, it will say what they died of, where they're being buried, and how long they'd been in the city of Baltimore. Important, did they get off a ship and bring that disease in? So think in terms of that. They weren't they didn't care if you were, you know, where you were born. They want well, they asked your age, because that might be significant to why you had died, you know, or how you had died. They'd ask, they asked the doctor what they died from, how long they'd been in the city of Maryland, or city of Baltimore, and and where are they being buried and when? I mean, very specifically. I'm getting buried two you died on a Tuesday, you're getting buried Thursday. How fast are you being put in the ground to keep whatever disease it is from spreading? Remember, this is prior to them thinking, you know, not quite fully understanding how diseases spread. Did they have an epidemic going on? They would publish this every day in the newspapers here in Baltimore. These are what people, and these are what they died from. And they were, somebody was in the health department back then, if they had a health department that was such, was tabulating that and saying, oh my goodness, we've had six cases of cholera this week. 
We may have something going on. Because remember, they knew where you lived. That was another thing they asked, is where you were when you died. Um, and they were trying to see if there was an epidemic starting up. And this is what they were used for even into the 20th century. They were looking to see, is there an epidemic going on? Is there something starting in a particular neighborhood or a county or something? And they had 20 occurrences of a disease. Typhoid fever. These are the things my relatives died of. This is what they're looking for. Did they have some contaminated water someplace? You know, something like that. They weren't trying to find that. They weren't looking to see if they, who your parents were or where you had been born or where they were born. All the things that we have on our current, who's your spouse's name, you know, things like that. They don't have anything like that back then. But it does give you a very important piece of information is the cemetery, which then might lead you to the church that they belong to. A lot of our cemeteries in Baltimore are church-based. They may not be church-affiliated, right, with a church that's down the street or next door, but they are religious-based. Let's put it that way. Um, Holy Redeemer is an independent um, cemetery over in over Bel Air and Moravia, over there. But it is all Catholics, and you have to be a Catholic to be buried there. They won't take you if you're not Catholic. So. But that doesn't mean that, you know, New Cathedral is another one of the Catholic cemeteries. But there are also Methodist cemeteries. Mount Olivet is where all the famous Methodists are buried. So you have all these different cemeteries that are semi-church related, but they, you know, they tend to be um, very much part of a religious base. However, some of these cemeteries have switched and become independent. One of these is Western Cemetery, which is not that far down on Route 40, uh, Emerson Avenue, Western Cemetery. It was started by the Methodist Church. It was actually started by one of my relatives, and it was called the West Fayette Street Station. That's what they called their churches back then, stations. And his daughter was the first one that was buried in there. But then in about after about 25, 30 years, they sold the cemetery and it became a private cemetery and they renamed it Western at that point. But it did have a very strong Methodist background. Yes? Did just the Methodist colored churches the station? Yeah, generally. I haven't seen other ones called stations. The reason why they were called stations back then is because most Methodist ministers were transient. I won't. I don't know, they were right circuit riders, okay? And they would go out and they would go and visit all the churches and their circuits and they would come back to their station. So that was kind of their headquarters. So West Fayette was the one on the west side of town and they had East Baltimore Station and they had all these different churches like that. So you didn't necessarily have a minister every week. <coughs> you may have a lay person do the, do the service on the weeks that the minister wasn't there. And, of course, that may be that why they had multiple marriages all, and christenings and baptisms all take place on the same day because that's when the minister was there. So it's not uncommon for, to see that, but that, you, know, you will see the word station used quite a bit for Methodism. Okay. 
These are the only colonial records that still exist. Not too many. All the counties were, you know, except for Western, were existent by 1776, but uh, not too much is left. So, divorce, I talked about that already. Uh, it wasn't until 1851 that divorces could take place in the county. Up until then, the state legislature was involved. Modern births, deaths, they began, Baltimore City, as I said, began 1875. And um, the rest of the state, finally in 1898. However, it was very spotty for most jurisdictions. I have grandparents that do not have, did not have birth certificates, even though they were supposed to have them. Where did they get their records when it was time for them to get something where they had to prove their age? They got their baptismal record. That was the legal records. All church records are legal records in this state. To this day, they are legal records. That doesn't mean that they, churches take care of them <laughs> the way you want. Respect that, you know, so you're not always going to find them. Types of church records. So what are we looking for? There are many different types of church records. Don't go into a church saying, just show me the marriage and baptismal records. You may not find the information that you're looking for. You may not find the wealth of information that you can find. There's, and, and the names of these depends on what they call them. So you just have to describe them to the church when you're asking for them. Um, administrative records. Oh, boy. Yeah, minutes. You think that they gossiped in those minutes? Oh, yes, they did. And, boy, you could learn some things about some of the members in those meetings. In those minute meetings. Okay, vital records. That's exactly what we think of in the secular. Baptisms, marriages, deaths. Um, membership records, an important thing. A lot of times you'll go into a church and, and they'll say, this member moved, and they'll point, they'll have, have them move to another area in the state. And it will say, they, you know, they're no longer a member of this, of this class or what, of this church. They've moved to, and you'll suddenly find them moving around. Very important thing. Um, you also find when they got kicked out of the church because they did something, whatever that happened to be. Yeah. All this that t very interesting information. Financial records. Um, you'll find the church giving money to somebody because of a death in the family. And there's nowhere that you find that there, any other place that that death took place. They'll say, so-and-so, widow so-and-so's, you know, came in asking for money because her husband so-and-so died and needed some money helping burial or helping with the kids, and they'll even list the kids' names and, and, and the ages of the kids, and you'll get a wealth of information. Miscellaneous records of all types. You know, uh, for, depending, and these are unique for the uh, denomination, obviously. In the Hebrew, uh, Jewish faith and everything, you have bar, mitzvah and bar mitzvahs, 
but class books, missionary records, cemetery records. A lot of churches own their cemeteries. And so they're very, the state of Maryland, because that's property, technically the person buried there kind of owns that property. The person buried there, you know, or the family member owns it. They have very strict rules in this state about whoever owns the cemetery has to keep very clear records of who is buried there. Because if you can't say who is buried there and where they're buried, you're not allowed to bury anybody else. Has that been followed? No. Baltimore Cemetery, you know, the one that sits down on the end of North Avenue, east end of North Avenue. The, the, it's been around since the 1840s. Um, that's where the cemetery was, but that's not where their office was located. Their office was located on Baltimore Street. What happened in 1904? A fire, and all their records were burned. All they had out at the cemetery itself was the caretaker's records that said, I buried so-and-so on this day. It might have the lot number and everything like that. They went out after that and did a survey of their, you know, and tried to recreate everything that was in that, everybody who was in that cemetery. They say they did it, but they haven't. Their records are very bad. Um, I have a lot of relatives buried there. They don't know that they're buried there. They don't even know they have tombstones. I mean, it's just amazing how bad it can be. But legally, they shouldn't be allowed to bury anybody else because they don't know where everybody is. But somehow they've continued since 1904 and still have burials today, even though it's a very old cemetery. Oh, the loose papers. That's what I like to get a hold of. Get a hold of something. This is where you're going to find the gossip and the tip. You will also find thank you notes and letters, you know, saying, you know, talking about something, you know, that maybe a parishioner has moved away. A member has moved away and they're writing back to say something about their new location. Uh, You got to go through it all. I hate to say it's not something that's. uh, you go in and say, "Go, just hand me this, and and I'll find everything I want." Sometimes they don't they don't even tell you what they have until you ask for it. So, do make sure that you take notes of uh, the different types of records, and just be kind. And then we're going to talk about how do you deal with getting church records. How do you get them to give you the information you want? Remember, this is not their business. Giving you records from the 1800s is not their business. Their business is today and, and not back then. And they, you know, they don't have a lot of help a lot of times. So let's go through. We're going to talk about the different approaches. If you know the name and location of your ancestor's church, and I'm going to stop there right now, and I'm going to give you my little spiel. This may not like, you may not like this, but just because you are a religion today, of a certain religion today, doesn't mean your great-grandparents were that religion. You may think they were, but that doesn't mean they were. People were a lot more fluid with their religions back in the 1800s. 
even into the 20th century, people, when they got married, the wife or the husband would change religions based on, and I don't mean just the fact that, you know, you had to raise your kids Catholic if, if you want, you know, that type of thing. They would change religions that become one or the other's person's religion. Had that happened many a times. If they moved and there wasn't a church that they could walk to, they went to another church. It just became another religion. It wasn't that big of a deal for them. That's why so many Quakers are no longer Quakers, because they moved away from the shorelines of the Chesapeake, which is where all the Quaker meetings were, and they moved out into western Maryland. There weren't any Quaker churches out there. There are very, 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 very few meetings out there. But they wanted to still continue going to church, and so they just went to the local one down the street. That was the way it was. It was a social thing also besides being a religious thing. So, I've had friends get really upset when they were doing their genealogy, when they would find out their family hasn't always been Lutheran. I almost think there's a lot of other things you can find out about your family other than the fact that they change religions. But um, be prepared for that. That's not that uncommon. But if you do know the name of the church and the location of that church and that church still exists, be kind, be polite, be patient, okay? Be very precise in what you're looking for. Don't go in there and say, tell me everything you know about John Smith. You know, they're not going to do much of that. Um, if you have to send it to them, be very clear in your letter. Don't ramble in the letter. Don't tell them all the history of the family when all you want to know is when this couple got married. Okay, did they get married in this church? And when they when did they get married? Okay, go be you know very precise. Ask for just one or two things, a few things per request. Don't overwhelm them. With thing. I know everyone in my family for the last 50 years was a member of this church. Give me every record. That's not going to work either. Um, give them as much detail as you need to give them, but don't give them anything more. And if it's an estimate of the date, if you know, well, we're thinking the marriage took place about 1830 because the first child was born in 1831, and you know that, then tell them that. Okay, give them an estimate of when you think it might have been. Keep in mind always that this is not the work of the church. Very few churches have anybody who can dedicate themselves to this. And there are some churches that get an enormous number of requests of information coming in. Um, some of them will charge fees. A lot of them won't but they do kind of expect a donation. Be ready. You should give a donation because it took time away from what they were doing. And they also sometimes make copies of things for you and all that costs money. So don't be, you know, don't be shy about, you know, donating a little bit of money to them. I can't tell you how much to give. Uh, 
once in a while you'll see a spot some of the places you'll go in they'll actually have you know twenty dollars per you know session that they're with you or something like that but um you know they they don't always and they may act like they don't want it but they really do so be ready for it so they really do i mean i know, I know baltimore cemetery does <laughs> okay what if you do know the name and location of your ancestor's church, but that church no longer exists? Can you imagine how many churches there are down in Baltimore that they used to be in Baltimore that don't exist anymore? Well, it depends on the religion as to what happened to those records. It depends on what happened to that church. Did it close completely? Or did it actually merge with another church? I know in Methodism that the churches can close. That's one of the choices. And one of my family's churches did close in 1929. It closed. All the records, believe it or not, ended up at my grandmother's house. <laughs> it was a Methodist Protestant church. And as you know, that went away in the mid-30s when they became the Methodist Church. But they didn't have it. Protestant method, the Methodist Protestants didn't have a mechanism. My grandmother, the Miss Record Keeper of the family, took everything with her and kept it at the house until the Methodist Historical Society opened up in 1951. And she took it all and gave it to them at that point. Thank, I thank her very much, you know, that she did that. But that's not typical. There have been, there have been preachers that have, um, and ministers that have thrown the records out. You know, they are legal records and they threw them out. I have had friends who have found the records in dumpsters and salvaged them because that minister didn't think they were needed and only kept the last few years or whatever, started throwing things out. Um, so you, but you need to find out. Some of them are very rigid about what gets done with that record, and they'd be really upset if their records got lost. So you need to call the archdiocese, the diocese, the convention, the conference, whatever it is for that religion, and find out what their standard practice is and what reality is. So a lot of them will tell you that their standard practice is that it turns into the archives or the historical group or whatever, but that's not necessarily what's happened. Maryland Historical Society, for instance, has a lot of church records. They ended up because the church came and gave them to them rather than to the religious order that, that the church was. They just turned over their records. The state of Maryland, the Maryland State Archives, has a lot of church records that were turned over to them. So just because their doctrine says this is what they're supposed to do, it's not necessarily what was done. And it may you become a detective in tracking that down. So you have to ask the right type. I'm also going to tell you, don't use the word genealogy when you're talking to these people. I don't know. Sometimes that sets people off the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I always say, I'm doing some family history research, and my family was members of this church. 
or would like to find it. You know, sometimes I go, ah, oh, here comes those genealogists again, you know, disturbing us. You have to be careful. Okay, so you have to find out if the church merged or joined with another because those records typically moved to that church. That's what happens. So you may have a church that is literally the merged church of five or six others through the years. Keeps, you know, moving and merging. So, and they may not remember the name of the church that it was 100 years ago. And the names changed. My family, when I went down, all I knew was the Washington Street Church. That's what I kept telling them down at the Methodist Archives. I need the Washington Street Church. But it had gone through a name change and became the Offutt Methodist Church. Oh, I wouldn't have known that. And that's how it was found. Now, I happen to be blessed in this case because one of my cousins became the assistant archivist down at the Methodist Historical Society. And she calls me up one day. And she says, Jane, I found the Thursby name in the books of this one church. I literally, I think I hung up the phone immediately and drove down the lovely lane. And boy, I was there as fast as possible. Okay, so this is when I found out my grandmother had given them all the records. Because she's up on the ladder and she's handing down all the records. You want this? You want this? And I went, yeah, yeah, I just want everything. She handed down this envelope that obviously had some loose material inside. And I said, boy, this handwriting looks like my grandmother's handwriting. And then I looked up in the corner for the address, and I went, it is my grandmother's handwriting, because it was her return address. So I went through the book and stood out there, and I opened up the the baptismal records, because that's what I was going for, for, the baptismal records first. And there were two little pieces of torn paper in there with my grandmother's handwriting on them. It said, page so-and-so, line so-and-so, page so-and-so, line so-and-so. I'm thinking, I wonder what this means. I open up, and those were the two baptismal records I was looking for. Now, she gave them those records in 1951. And that was the last time that anybody had opened those books. And this was in 2001. Fifty years later, I was the next person. And it was like she was saying, I told you you'd be interested in doing family history. (laughs) You know, here is what you've been looking for. And I'm giving it to you now, finally. It took you 50 years to get here. Because I remember many a times my grandmother would try and start conversations that she'd say, um, yeah, I went by Greenmount Cemetery the other day looking up all the relatives, and I know who they all are and where they all are buried. And I remember it going in this year and just going right out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She dies. I, I get interested in it. Now I wish I could talk to her because she died in 92. And in 2007... I suddenly find my cousins have in their possession a full genealogy that she's put together. And it was all the things that I had been finding myself in the intervening years. Luckily, I had gotten it right, the same as she had. But it was just amazing to find that she had done all this in the late 60s, early 70s. She had put that all together. And I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know. So if your kids or grandchildren are doing that now, just put it all down in writing. They're going to want it at some point. But the thing that it was 50 years, I was the first person to open that same book in 50 years. Because those things would have fallen out and nobody would have kept them. <coughs> but it was under a church name that was not the church name that I had been told. It was under Allnut. And I you know, was thinking it used to be called the Washington Street Church. So that church closed and the records just went home with somebody. It's not uncommon. Hopefully they gave them like my grandmother did, you know, back to the archives. Suppose you do not know the name and location of your ancestor's church, but you know the religion. Now let's say you think you know the religion, okay? That's important. I did not know my relatives were Methodist, Protestant. You know, I go down there thinking a Methodist straight, and everybody at the archives was handing me only a Methodist Episcopal records to begin with. And it turned out the church that had closed was a Methodist Protestant church, and that's not one that they typically think of. But You need to determine the church to which your ancestors belong. And this is when you become a historical detective. Now, it's likely the local church that's closest to their home. They have to be able to walk to get there. People didn't have cars. Okay? We're talking, you know, if you're talking about some records in the 1940s, that's a lot different. You've got secular records for a lot of those. But if you're talking the 1800s, you are hunting for these church records. And people just did, you know, they didn't have cars, they didn't have buggies, you know. We're not out in the West. Everyone didn't have a buggy. Um, they lived in the cities, and they walked. And that's how they met their spouses, because they typically married someone they went to church with. And they made that once the spouse may lived up, grew up on one side of the church, and you grew up on the other, and you walked and you met at church. This is you know how it happened. The population of the area has changed or diminished. There's often a need to build new churches. Uh, establish new dioceses and parishes. It says, therefore, your research may require combining history with genealogy. You've got to find out. You can go back to the city's directories and find out what churches were there. You know, they always list all the churches in the city directories for, Mar for Baltimore and for other major cities. Find out what churches were there and where your people live during particular census, and plot that out because they're not going to go two miles to a church. They're going to go the close. That's why there was a Methodist church on just about every corner back then. Okay. And if you're a Catholic, you had to go to the local diocese. You couldn't go to the one, maybe one you wanted to go to. You had to go to the local. So there's a lot of those type of things. You're going to have to figure out where that church is. Once you find out what the churches were in the area, then you go back and, and, and check with the diocese or the parishes or the conventions and find out what happened to those churches' records. Are they still with the ch a church down the street that it merged with? Or one they 
through five mergers, you know, and they end up being out in the county now instead of being in the city. So that's not uncommon, so that may happen. If you do not know the name and location of your ancestor's church, but you know, here's an example right here. I wanted to give you an example. You would like a copy of your great-grandmother's 1890 baptismal record. And a phone directory, that's the, the city directory, um, shows that St. Mary's Catholic Church near her childhood home residence. That's where that's the nearest church. But they're not found at that parish, that, that, that what they're in. A bit of historical may find that it was a step when it was established. Find out when that church was established. It may not have even existed at the time frame that you're looking at. And that's going to tell you you have to know that. Just because that's the local church now, it may not have been at all there. You've got to go through all of this until you find. You may even have to go to the 1890 papers and start going through and finding advertisements for church. Remember when churches used to advertise all the time what was going on on Sunday? They did it back then. Yes. Well, and I know a lot of churches are at home city, um, they tell stories of how um, my, would pass up the German Catholic Church or whatever to go to the Irish Catholic Absolutely. Absolutely. Churches tended to group by nationality. And there's even, back when the Lutheran churches were all German, there's a church now in existence in the city of Baltimore. It's at its third location, I believe, and it's called the First English Lutheran Church. And that's because it was the first Lutheran church in Baltimore that spoke English. However, it's located up on Charles Street near 39th Street around around there. But it was way down in the city originally, and you have to find. But there's even one that was called the Second Lutheran, English Lutheran Church. So you can almost see from the names, you know. So, you, yes, it's very important that you would end up in a, a parish or a church that was more of your background. That's why when I say the Washington church, that was my family's church. Boy, was that my family's church. I mean, everyone hates it when I'm down at the archives looking up because I can find everything for a 100 years in that church. You know, I mean, all the baptisms, the deaths, the minister's notes of when they went and visited people. And what was going on in the family, you know. Very interesting to read all that and just sit through it and go, you know, go, that's not fair when I'm down there. They go, Jane, that's not fair. You can find everything. I said, yes, you know. You have one branch of your or a couple branch my father's side of the family. That's what I'll say, my, that branch of the family. Just going through all the churches. My mother's family did the same thing, but they were out in Montgomery County, Frederick County area. But they all went to the same church. And I can go out there for the cemetery, and literally everybody in the old section is a relative. Every single person. Three, four generations are there. But it took me a while to find that church because the town no longer exists. And it was called, at that point, Browningsville Methodist Church. But it's now called Bethesda. Although it's not in Bethesda, that just happens to be the name of the church. Bethesda Methodist Church. And and finding out where their records are and 
the fact, you know, but I literally, every single person in that cemetery in the old section is a family member of one sort of another. So once you find your, your families, if they didn't move around a lot, which if they did move around, you are going to have to think they change religions. That's one of the problems that you'll have. Let's go through. See. If you do not know the religion, hunt for that marriage record. Because the marriage record is going to tell you the minister's name. And then you can go to Edna's book. And she has done the most wonderful thing. She has put together a complete listing of every minister and every church when they were there. Okay, I'm sure the library has it here. This is not in publication anymore, so you're going to have to get it in the library. But it has tens of thousands of records in it. And it will tell you little. You'll look up a minister's name, and it will tell you every church they served at and what time they served. Okay? For the entire state of Maryland. Oh, my God, it took her years. Would that be in other states, too? No. It, it depends on what other states have done. This we're blessed because Maryland did it. Now, that doesn't mean that other states didn't do it. Maybe she got her idea of doing it from... Uh, another state but when she did this back in the 80s I mean you know as you can see it went up to 18 when she finally published it was 1990 that's when she published I mean this was a massive undertaking this is pre-computers um, the person who did the index for it and it is indexed by minister's name in the back just passed away a few weeks back. She was 85 when she died. She did it on three and a half by five cards in shoe boxes. Ten, you know, sorting them in the order that they needed to when she would go and type, finally typed up the, uh, the index. All these peoples. Major undertaking. One of the best books that was, I mean, if you're a state of Maryland, this is, this is the, the Bible of uh, churches. Especially since the minister's name has to be included on the record. Now, you know, unfortunately, if you get a common name, you may have to look at several churches. If it turns out that John Smith is the minister, you know, it might be two or three different John Smiths. But it does give you information about each one of those ministers. So you might be able to know what time frame they're talking about. I mean, a John Smith that lived during the 20th century isn't the same John Smith that lived during the 18th, 18th century. Yeah, but she goes back, all the way back. She took, went to hist got church histories, directories, and managed to find all these people's names. Okay. These are other sources, and I just list these all. These are the typical places that you're going to go. The Diocese of Baltimore, the Catholic Diocese, puts a full genealogy, I'll call it, of their churches. When they existed, what time frame they were existed, if they no longer existed, what's going on. Okay? They go through all their churches that they've had over several long time, I forget how long of a time they have, but they'll say this church closed, this church opened on this date, this church did this, you know. Okay? Very important. These are all the different places that you can find. St. Mary's Cemetery and University Associated Archives 
is also where you will find all the Catholic archive records. Baptism records from the 1800s. I love Catholic records. They give you so much information. Especially like Catholic, this one Catholic cemetery that doesn't exist anymore, St. Alphonsus Cemetery. It not only, it really, you really had to be a Catholic to be buried there. Boy, did you have to be a Catholic. Because you had to have where you were baptized, okay, who your parents were, where they were baptized. And this cemetery closed in 1920. Nobody, I mean, it still kind of exists. It's not really, the land's never been used for anything. But they moved everybody and put them in the Holy Redeemer. But the books still exist. Think about that, all the immigrants that came. And it would tell you where they got baptized, which is going to lead you right back to an Irish parish or a French parish, a German parish that you didn't, wouldn't have known where they were from but it has their parents back where they were from where they were born and where they got baptized their cemetery records who would think of that saint alphonsus so if you ever see that on a death certificate holy redeemer has it but this is, this is how you get this information, is that you got to do a lot of digging. Gotta just ask. There's probably somebody who's already gone through this hole. Where did you find it? I mean, I, that's why I belong to genealogy societies, you know, because that I'm going to get someone else there has already done it. I went to the last meeting of the Baltimore County Genealogical Society last Sunday, and they decided they're going to do St. Mary's of Hamden Cemetery records. I got them. That's where all my Hamden, they, they were not Episcopal, it's an Episcopal cemetery, but they let anybody from the neighborhood bury, be buried there in Hamden. I own Hamden. I own Hamden. I go down Hamden streets and I go, I had somebody born there, somebody lived there, somebody died there, somebody born there, somebody lived there, somebody died there. I can go down to Elm and I can go down to, you know, Hickory, I can go to Chestnut, I can go to every street, you know, and literally hit. My mother and all her siblings were born there. Both her parents and all their siblings were born there. My grandfather's father and all his siblings were born there. So, and that's going back into the 1800s. So, I own Hamden. I'm a Camden hun. So, any questions? Breakdown of religion is also important to know. I'll give you that in your handout. Okay. Yes. Yes, they are. Considered by the state of Maryland to be legal records. So, what, I mean, I'm a lawyer, but what citation or what part of the law discusses these records and how they are to be handled? How do I find them? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that. I do know that they're considered, uh, you know, I haven't studied the Constitution that much uh, to get into that. But I do know that they are considered legal records and can be used as substitutes for any secular record that you cannot find. So, being that, my both my grandparents, 
um, had to use those as their birth certificates. In fact, all four of them had to use them as birth certificates, their baptismal records. And they went and did for Social Security. And when they first got their Social Security cards back in the 30s and 50s and everything, when they were getting them, um, that's what they had to use because they did not have a birth certificate. And if a marriage record can't be found, and believe me, you know, record keeping, it, it, it does occasionally lose something or do what Baltimore City did. Uh, they archived everything, all their death certificates, and then they destroyed the original ones. Well, they didn't check to see if it photographed collect correctly. And there's quite a few you get in there, and they're so blurry that you can't read them. So they can't go back to the original and look because they destroyed them all. And also, the Maryland has its own state law library. Well. It's right yeah. across the street. If you ever wonder what that building is across the street from the state archives that sits back in the trees, that's the Maryland State uh, Archi uh, Law Library. They have a wealth of genealogy material there. That you, they don't, they don't promote it. They just. And what's the nice thing is that if you're going to go down to the archives and they're going to kick you out at 4:30 in the afternoon and like. I am not getting in that traffic at that point. Just walk across the street because they're open till 9. And go and do the other things because you can't drive across the street. There's no place to park over there. I don't understand how they expect everyone to come because there's really no place to park. If you just walk across the street and go in, it's great. I mean, I've spent many an hour pull up a chair in front of the bookcases and you just start going through the books. You know, it's great. And yeah. there's a phone number two. They have a reference line. So they'll answer phone <coughs> just in case you're not in town. You know, you don't have to do a reference. You can also call. You know. Yes. Uh, I wasn't uh, on the ball here. You uh, mentioned about John Hopkins buried on Hopkins Road, and I forgot to put down. Oh, he's in the Quaker Cemetery that's Quaker there. Cemetery. Yeah, he was a Quaker. Yeah, it's right on Hartford Road, um, not far from where it, north of North Avenue, you know, where Hartford Road is. I don't, I don't know. I just know that you go by it on Hartford Road. You may not know because it's not ostentatious in any way. It's a Quaker thing, so all he has is a little the marker, and that's it, you know.
they probably have them. They just can't put their hands on it because, I mean, what is really good if you can build a relationship with those church people and then say, look, I know this is wasting your time. How about letting me go to the room where all these records are and just go in there? I will not do anything, you know. I mean, if they get to know you and trust you, they'll let you do that. That's one of the nice things about the 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 Methodist Historical Society down at Lovely Lane is they let you actually touch the books. They don't have things computerized. They bring out the books. They may give you some white gloves to put on, but um, they bring out the books and you can go through them at your will. You know, and some of these records are 200 years old. So, um, and they just let you touch everything. The church is, it depends on the church. They may be so embarrassed, and I hate to say this, but it is true. They may be so embarrassed about their poor record keeping because they may have merged with another church and all they did was receive the boxes and put them in a room in the basement where it could flood or damp or other things, you know. So, and we are probably run out of time here because I'm a talker. So, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. No. Because it's a mess. And I remember my mom telling me that her mother used to take her down there. They had this fenced-in area for the uh, Rover family, and they had two angels. Well, all that's gone. Yeah. And stones are turned over. Yeah. The Rover stones are still there. Yeah. My baby uh, named Kraut, those people were there with the facts. But there's a sign when you go in that cemetery saying, don't, don't ring my doorbell. I have no records. No, and they aren't taking care of it. It's been that way for years. They've made efforts to do it. They'll clean it up, and then the next year they don't. You know, it's it's back to the tall grass, which is why you never go there in the summertime. Go there in the early spring, because otherwise there's snakes and things. You know, so you got to be careful. Rats and things like that. You got to be careful about that. The Methodist Church, I, I, no, I think the Methodist Church has the records, okay, and Lovely Lane, I would contact them because I think they have the records. They don't own it. It's owned by a private person, believe it or not. It's amazing. Well, that's easy to find. If you don't know, under the Department of Labor Licensing and Regulation is the Cemetery Oversight Committee. And they have a record of who owns every single cemetery in, in the state of Maryland. Now, what defines a cemetery? One burial. Okay? So you'll find farms and things like that. So the Department of Labor, Licensing, and what? Regulation. I call it DLLR, Department of Labor, Licensing, and Regulation. Okay? And under there is the cemetery oversight. Yes. Well, no. I, really, the Catholic the, the Catholic Church has done the best job. I mean, they really have. Up at St. Mary's, they have done the best job. St. Mary. In Baltimore. Not the one in Frederick County. St. Mary's in Baltimore. Seminary. Yes. 
Like up there, you know, in Roland Park area. Right. They've done the best job because they can control their flock a lot better than some of the churches, you know. So, yeah, they do have done the best job. I'd, uh, the rest of the religion, some of them don't even like record keeping, and so they don't do it. So it's very hard. You, have to, you become a detective. And regardless if they keep telling you they don't have something, you keep asking. Okay? You keep asking to the point where saying, let me go down and look. You know, please let me. I know it's here. You know, you have to do that sometimes. Because you, otherwise you are going to be, um, you won't find something that's right there, you know. Because they just don't, they know, they don't know. You know, they don't know. Well, thank so. you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, Sorry I've talked really so long. Thank you. Um,